Lord, we thank you that you sent your Son, um, among other things, to teach us to pray, to teach us to pray like this and say, Our Father, who art in heaven. And so we come to you as our Heavenly Father, and we offer you these prayers in the name of Jesus. We come to you now, trusting in what your Son has done in our place. And God, we pray that you would help us in this hour uh, to think rightly about you. We pray that you would help us to feel rightly about you, to desire and treasure you more appropriately, more like we should, more commensurate with your great worth. And God, we pray that you would work in our wills too, uh, that thinking about who you are as the triune God would, would cause us to make choices to follow you in obedience and in self-denial. God, thank you for your immense kindness, the riches of your kindness that you've shown us in Christ, seating us with him in heavenly places. Uh, we are so secure in, in what you've done for us. Thank you that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost all who come near to you through him. That's our confidence, and, and because you've done that for us, we trust that your intention is to do good to us and in us, even in this hour. And so we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> All right, welcome back for this last week on the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, having five weeks of material behind us, I will not, as I've done in previous weeks, begin by reviewing all we've covered um, so rather, just to reorient everyone, I printed a couple of definitions of the doctrine of the Trinity on your handout. Here's the Trinity, simply stated, and here are a couple of good statements uh, from saints who've gone before us, I'm not trying to reinvent the wheel here. Uh, we've made use of these statements in the past. The first on your handout is taken from the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 2. About God, there is but one only living and true God. In the unity of the one Godhead, there are three persons. They of one substance or being, one substance, power, and eternity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The Father is of none neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, the Holy Spirit eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. And then I printed portions of the Nicene Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance, 
or being or essence or, or nature with the Father by whom all things were made. And I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified. Hallelujah. So where we left off last time was the gospel is the shape of the Trinity. And before we get into this week's material, I want to review and expound upon just this point. Because I think it's a really helpful and also really beautiful truth. Uh, And furthermore, we ran out of time last week. And so I got to spend about 60 seconds talking about this. Um, And so if you weren't here last week, uh, this section, just the next three or four minutes, may be harder uh, to track with for you, but that's okay, okay? So hang in there about five minutes, then we'll start some new material, and you'll be able to jump on the train with everyone else. Okay, so when I say that the gospel is the shape of the Trinity, I mean that what God did to save us mirrors who He is in Himself, What he did to save us, that's the gospel. That's the good news of our salvation. So to save us, God sent his son and sent his spirit. And so in the gospel, in saving us, God once for all revealed that he is the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. But the sending of the Son and Spirit, or the sending, the missions of the Son and Spirit, in salvation history, not only reveal that God is three persons... This gospel also reveals how these three persons relate to one another within the life of God. Within the life of God, the persons of the Godhead relate according to what's termed eternal processions. We just read this in these ancient statements of faith. The Son's manner of procession is that He is eternally begotten of the Father, begotten, not made, before all worlds. The Spirit's manner of procession is, is He eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. Again, last week we spent you know, a lot of time substantiating those things. I won't rehash that here. Um, so the eternal begetting of the Son, the eternal proceeding of the Spirit within the Godhead, these two relations amongst the persons of the Trinity are called God's eternal processions. So I'm going to use the phrase eternal processions. This is what I'm referring to. In this, the the beginning of the Son, the procession of the Spirit, this simply is God's essence in life. Okay, so here's the connection to the gospel. The saving missions of the Son and Spirit in time reveal the eternal processions or the eternal going forths of the Son and the Spirit within the Godhead. The saving missions of the Son and Spirit in time are the extension of the eternal processions of the Son and Spirit within the Godhead. So, so, to put it another way, the coming forth of the Son in time is simply the extension of the eternal going forth of the Son in God. And the outpouring of the Spirit on God's people in time is simply the extension in salvation history, of the eternal proceeding of the Spirit from the Father and Son within God. So to say that the Trinity and the gospel have the same shape is simply to point out the connection between the divine missions 
that win for us eternal life and the divine processions that constitute God's own eternal life. The Father eternally begets the Son, but then among us and for our salvation, the Father sends the Son to become incarnate and dwell among us. And so the Son who is from the Father eternally becomes from the Father in the world for us to save. And then the Father and Son eternally breathe forth their spirit within the life of God. Then among us and for our salvation, the Father and Son send the Spirit to become poured out and dwell inside us. And so the Spirit who is from the Father and Son eternally becomes the Spirit from the Father and Son in the world, in history, for us and for our salvation. So, so if I said this phrase, the Son from the Father and the Spirit from the Father and Son... You'd have to ask for clarification. Are you talking about who God is in himself or what God has done to save us? Because that could describe both. So God's saving missions reflect and flow from his eternal processions. The coming of the Son, the coming of the Spirit, find their ultimate roots in God's eternal life, in just who he is as the Trinity. And so, so how I've heard Fred Sanders put this is something like God saved us by simply becoming among us who he is within himself. God saves us simply by manifesting who he is as the blessed Trinity. And, and the, here is a direct quote from Sanders. This is the Trinitarian method of grace whereby God brings us to himself by being himself among us. And this, this connection goes back, you know, this is an ancient uh, truth that, that the church has seen in the scriptures and in the gospel. Augustine really developed this, uh, you know, 1,500 years ago about how the, the, the sending of Son and Spirit reveal and flow from the processions within God. All right, so uh, here's your chance to jump back on the train if we lost you at some point. Today's new material which we'll spend the rest of our time on, is the Trinity and the Christian life. The Christian life is a thoroughly Trinitarian reality, whether you recognize it or not. If you are a Christian, you don't have to learn this stuff uh, to experience God the Trinity. If you follow Jesus, you are experiencing God the Trinity every day by knowing and following and trusting in Jesus. If you know and have fellowship with God because you trust in the cross and resurrection of Jesus, then your life has more to do with the Trinity than you know. You are immersed in the doctrine of the Trinity. Again, whether you recognize it explicitly or not. And so to know God as the Trinity is not just an intellectual and doctrinal thing. To know God as the Trinity is something experiential. It is the experience of salvation in Jesus' name. So if you're a Christian, we, uh, we could have just started the series like this. We, I could have just said, okay, guys, come on. You all know. You all know the Trinity. You do. If you're a Christian, you know God the Father. He's the one who loves you and sent his son for you. You all know God the Son. He's the one who loves you and gave himself up for you. You all know 
If you're a Christian, God the Spirit, he's the one who produces his fruit of love in you. All true Christians know the triune God better than they can express and more than they are aware of because all of the Christian life is a thoroughly Trinitarian reality. That's true for the whole, and it's true for every part. And that's where we're headed. So before seeing how this is true with respect to specific aspects of the Christian life, I want to make some big-picture comments about how the Trinity and Christian life relate. Ephesians 2.18, an important verse. Ephesians 2.18 says, For through Him, that is Christ you trace back the pronoun. For through Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So we come to the Father through Christ in the spirit. Ephesians 2.18, the Christian life. Um, So in Trinitarian terms, then the Christian life is a kind of mirror image of the gospel of our salvation. God's saving work was carried out from the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit, and then our response to God is that in reverse. Our life as Christians is lived out by the Spirit, through the Son, to the Father. So the whole Christian life, all our communion with God, follows this basic Trinitarian path, again, whether we recognize what's going on or not. Um, So God came to get us by sending the Son and the Spirit, and we're brought back to Him by the power of the Spirit and in union with His Son. Uh, Robert Lethem, speaking about this verse, says, Here lies the basic premise of all God's actions. And we saw this last week. All God's actions are, are from the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. All, all of the works of God outside of Himself in the world are works of the Trinity, indivisibly. In Ephesians 2.18, we see the reverse movement to God's actions by the Holy Spirit through Christ to the Father. And this encompasses our entire response to God, our entire relationship with God from worship through the whole field of Christian experience. The Christian life is just retracing the Trinitarian steps of the gospel back to God. We have access to God through the Son by the Spirit, this God who has saved us by acting uh, the Father, from the Father, through the Son by the Spirit. Along these same lines, we can point out the biblical affirmations. It's printed on your handout. No one comes to the Father except through the Son. Jesus said that explicitly. And no one confesses the Son except by the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 3, no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 9, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. The only way to have the Father is by the Son. And the only way to have the Son is by the Spirit. And so if you can say, God is my God, I am a part of His people, then you must be living a very Trinitarian kind of life. You have access to the Father only through the Son and by the Spirit. 
There is no God other than the blessed Trinity. And there is no way to belong to God other than this Trinitarian kind of way. Um, Here's another way to think about it. The Christian life, from one angle, is simply, and this is the doctrine of adoption and union with Christ um, expounded and summarized. (coughs) The Christian life, from one angle, is simply sharing in the Son's relationship to the Father by the Spirit. Boy, that truth could be milked for quite some time. Just remember that and think about it during your commute. The Spirit joins us to Christ in whom we are adopted as sons by the Father. And and you could subsume all the realities of the Christian life under this, the umbrella of this truth. Galatians 4, 4 through 6, we've gotten a lot of mileage out of these verses in this series. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, (coughs) to redeem those who were under the law. So that we might receive adoption as sons. God sent his son in order to adopt us as sons. Verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. Crying, Abba, Father. So the Holy Spirit is the spirit of the Son of God. In Romans 8, called the spirit of adoption. The spirit unites us to Christ. The spirit, therefore, gives us the status of Christ's sonship before the Father. Wow. The spirit, I've said several times in this series, the spirit communicates the love of the Father to us through divine truth, through the word, the gospel especially, no doubt. But the Spirit communicates the love of the Father to us. Romans 5.5, the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Spirit. And then the Spirit bears witness that we are children of God. Romans 8, the Father loves us. And the Father of our Lord Jesus is now our Father too by adoption. And, And then the same Spirit compels us to respond to the love of the Father by causing us to cry out and address God in prayer. Abba, Father, just like the Son does. We are in Christ by the Spirit. Christ is in us by the Spirit. We are brought as sons to glory. Hebrews 2.10 To be a Christian is to share graciously to be given a share in the Son's relationship to the Father by the Spirit. This is the Christian life. And and this is another way of expressing some of the truths we saw in John 17 previous weeks ago. The great blessing of the Christian life is to know God and enjoy Him. This is eternal life, Jesus said in prayer to the Father in John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus whom you have sent If you recall in John 17, uh, we saw that the great goal, the end result of salvation, uh, the landing strip of salvation is that God gives us a share in the knowledge and fellowship and love and glory and joy of his own triune life. 
in the end, these things will be ours in a complete and constant way. We will be transformed into the likeness and glory of the Son. We will know God as we are fully known. We will have fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore with God. We will love God with a pure and full love and see clearly His love for us as adopted sons in the Son. But even now, we enjoy all of these things, albeit in an incomplete and inconstant way. And our experience of these things is incomplete and inconstant because we all still struggle with sin and because we live in a world under the curse of sin. And yet, in some measure, we enjoy these Trinitarian blessings now, too, as, as the great jewel of the Christian life, communion with God, knowing Him. Right? Even now, we have eternal life, which is to know God and to know His Son. Dan prayed this in his prayer before the sermon last week. He thanked God that we have eternal life, even now, that our eternal life doesn't start when we enter heaven. But the Bible talks about our possession of eternal life now. Yes, of course, because even now we have fellowship with the Father and with His Son, 1 John 1, 3 says. 1 Peter 1, 8, it's on your handout. I love this verse. It says, though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, so I take it the word now in there means that's going to change. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. So this love and glory that we um, are graciously given to share in from God and with God uh, and joy, this, this is ours even now, though we have not yet seen Him. Though you do not see Him, you love Him. Though you have not now seen Him, you believe and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. You can have such, um, such communion with God on this side of heaven that your experience can be described as rejoicing with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And this is to people in the very next verse, I think it is. He talks about, uh, you've been grieved by various trials. This is, this is a joy in the midst of the suffering and sorrow of this world. 2 Corinthians 13, 14, this is a benediction for the Christian life. Uh, we, the students and I, pray this for one another at the end of every student ministry meeting. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. It's a prayer for the Christian life. Uh, John Owen, which I, I think I read this week, someone said that he wrote over 7 million words. This was like before the era of copy-paste in Microsoft Word. This guy was prolific. And, and he wrote a book, and of course it was a massive book, uh, on this one verse, 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The title of the book was, Of Communion with God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Each Person Distinctly, 
in love, grace, and consolation. Or, he couldn't choose, so we put both titles on the front, I guess. Or, the saints' fellowship with the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost unfolded. So, right, if that's the title, you understand how he wrote seven million words. Right? And in this, this work, he teaches how the Christian can and should have communion even with each member of the Godhead distinctly. And he, he spells out what that should look like based on uh, 2 Corinthians 13, 14. Um, we'll move on. Having seen the big picture now of how the Christian life is an experience of the whole Trinity, now we'll look at a few specific aspects of the Christian life to show how they are each Trinitarian realities in and of themselves. They don't just contribute to a larger Trinitarian whole. Uh, so a few aspects of the Christian life seen through a Trinitarian lens. And this is just a representative sampling. Um, I could have chosen others. I could have gone into more and less detail, right? If we say that everything we do as Christians, if the whole field of Christian experience is Trinitarian, then you've, you have to pick a representative sample. Um, Fred Sanders says this in his book, The Deep Things of God. Everything evangelical Christians do is grounded in Trinitarian commitments. Proclamation of the gospel, personal appropriation of salvation, assurance of salvation, submission to biblical authority, knowledge of the Bible, authoritative preaching, effective worship, conversational prayer, world missions, and many other standard features of evangelical church life are rich resources for Trinitarian exploration. Dig anywhere, and you will hit Trinitarian gold. Should we not expect this? If all things are from God and through God and to God, and God is the Trinity, then we should have guessed ahead of time, before we were told, that all the realities of the Christian life are Trinitarian realities. Um, so we're just going to look at prayer, Bible intake, missions and evangelism, and our sanctification, Lord willing. Uh, we could do even more, I, I think especially of some of the corporate realities of the Christian life that I'm leaving out, uh, the gathered worship of the local church. I'll just mention these to put a bug in your ear. Maybe you can uh, dig about these things in your own time for the Trinitarian gold. Our gathered worship of the local church, preaching, the, the, even the act of hearing the preached word as a local church, our fellowship with one another, the good works that we uh, offer to God, the rewards that God graciously gives. We can examine any of these things. Eventually, we will find Trinitarian gold at the center of them or at the bottom of them or all around them. Really, even just a few I've chosen to, to look at, we won't take a deep dive into any of these. Um, just enough to give you a little taste of the truth that the Christian life is a thoroughly Trinitarian reality. Whether you realize it or not, we're going to talk about prayer and Bible intake 
and I understand that you've probably done a fair amount of praying and taking in the Bible uh, before we've talked about how it's a Trinitarian reality. Uh, so this is just to teach you more of the glory of, of what you already know. Okay, prayer. This may be the reality of the Christian life that is described in the richest Trinitarian ways in Scripture. First of all, see that we have two divine intercessors. The Son intercedes for us to the Father. Romans eight thirty four. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? Hebrews 7.25. I, I prayed the first part of this verse earlier. Consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost all those who draw near to God through Him. Since... He always lives to make intercession for them. Hebrews 9.24 says, Christ has entered into heaven itself to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. First uh, John 2.1, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus' advocacy for us before the Father includes His intercession. And the Spirit intercedes for us to the Father. Romans 8, 26 and 27. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints, all Christians, the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. I think it's no accident that the very next verse is Romans eight twenty eight. All things work together. And part of why all things work together for good for Christians is because the Spirit of God intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. What can we say about these things? How secure are we that the Son prays as an incarnate man to the Father for us? And the Spirit prays as the indwelling Spirit in man to the Father for us. This is amazing. This divine double intercession of Son and Spirit to the Father. Of course, only a triune God could be good to us in this way. It isn't only that these prayers for us, our Trinitarian realities, our own experience of prayer, our own prayers that we offer to God are also Trinitarian realities. So a Christian's prayers are to God, by God, and through or in God, uh, by which I mean we pray to the Father in the Son. 
So we pray in the name of the Son. Jesus told his disciples in John 14, ask in my name. Again in John 15, ask the Father in my name. Again in John 16, ask the Father in my name. We pray to the Father in the name of the Son. That is on the basis of his work. Um, in union with him. And when Jesus taught us to pray, he taught us to pray with him and like him by calling on God as our Father. It's like, uh, of course, the Lord's Prayer, right? Jesus said, pray then like this, our Father in heaven. We can only call on God as our Father because we are disciples of the Son, who has God as his Father, really, naturally. Um, Jesus said to Mary after he raised from the dead and before he was ascended, he said, don't cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to, and listen to how he describes his disciples, go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father. So in brotherhood with the son, we pray to God the father. And we pray to the father not only through the son, but also by the spirit. Uh, Ephesians 6, 17, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit. Pray at all times in the Spirit. With all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Jude, verse 20, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. Prayer is all true Christian prayer that God hears and receives is prayer in the Holy Spirit. Will God turn away his own son? Will God stop his ear to his own spirit? No. We have great confidence in prayer when we have come to the Father because we come in the name of the Son and by the Spirit. Romans 8.15 You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, We talked about the parallel verse uh, of this truth in Galatians 4 earlier. And and that verse begins to connect the role of the Son and the Spirit in our prayers to the Father. The Spirit compels us to cry to God the Father as our Father, because the Spirit is the Spirit of adoption as sons. We pray in the Spirit because the Spirit affects our adoption by the Father in Christ. Let me read you another Fred Sanders quote. This is so good. He says, To dare address God as our Father 
is to place oneself in the same category as the one person who is absolutely the true Son of God, Jesus Christ. I think it's a big deal to be called a Son of God. You know, the Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus because he called himself God's Son. It's like he was making himself equal with God. The only reason that we dare to do this is that Jesus himself invited us to pray in this way. And on his authority, we find ourselves standing in a place that only he can authentically occupy. Because Jesus Christ has come and taken our place, we find ourselves included in his place, deep inside the love of the triune God. So if the Christian life is, from one angle, simply sharing in the Son's relationship to the Father by the Spirit, prayer is a beautiful illustration of that truth. Because we pray in this way to the Father and the Son by the Spirit, our prayers are from God, through God, and to God. A single person God could not bring us to himself, by himself, like this. Only because God is triune can he himself bring us so close. Only a triune God could receive our prayers and mediate our prayers and empower and guide our prayers. Only with a triune God could our prayers be from and by him, through and in him, and to and for him. So in the Bible's teaching on prayer, you see clearly, don't we, the pattern of Ephesians 2, 18, access to the Father by the Spirit in the Son. Um, C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity, has a wonderful little section on this truth. So I've mentioned, you know, that book both this week and last week. I'll throw my stamp out there. I don't, you know, I, I don't agree with everything he says in the book, but but he does say some wonderful things, many wonderful things, and he says them wonderfully. So I'm going to read a fuller quote than just what I have on your page. Uh, Listen to this. This is worth reading. And Lewis is easy listening, easier than listening to me. You may ask, if we cannot imagine a three-personal being, what is the good of talking about him? Well, there isn't any good just talking about him. The thing that matters is being actually drawn into that three-personal life. And that may begin any time, tonight if you like. What I mean is this. An ordinary, simple Christian kneels down to say his prayers. He's trying to get in touch with God. But if he's a Christian, he knows that what is prompting him to pray is also God. God, so to speak, inside him. But he also knows that all his real knowledge of God comes through Christ, the man who was God, that Christ is standing beside him, helping him to pray, praying for him. You see what is happening. God is the thing to which he is praying, the goal he is trying to reach. God is also the thing inside him which is pushing him on, the motive power. God is also the road or bridge along which he is being pushed to that goal. So the whole threefold life of the three personal being is actually going on 
in that ordinary little bedroom where an ordinary man is saying his prayers. The man is being caught up into the higher kind of life. He's being pulled into God, by God, while remaining himself. So Lewis's language about being taken up into the life of the Trinity is just another way to talk about um, the things we saw in John 17. Bible intake, by which I mean taking in the Bible, reading it, studying it, hearing it, meditating on it, you know, a bunch of other verbs, it. In the words of the Bible, God speaks by His Spirit about and in His Son. Or God speaks to us by His Word, by His, carried along by His breath or wind or Spirit. J.I. Packer writes that Scripture is God the Father preaching God the Son in the power of God the Spirit. God the Father is the giver of Holy Scripture. God the Son is the theme of Holy Scripture. And God the Spirit is the author, authenticator, and interpreter of Holy Scripture. Um, 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 17. It's the classic text in the Bible about the Bible. And the main line there in verse 16 is, All Scripture is breathed out by God. That's how the ESV has it. Uh, most other translations say something like, all Scripture is inspired by God or given by inspiration of God. And I think the ESV did a good thing to change inspired to breathed out because um, that's closer to what inspired meant, I think, when that word was chosen. We think inspired now, like I just have kind of a eureka moment. Oh, I feel inspired. But but to say the scriptures are inspired, B.B. Uh, Warfield says it's better, it, it would be more, it would be better to say that they were um, X or outspired. Okay? Spiration is, is from the old world word that just means to breathe, to spirate, to breathe. Okay, if you aspirate, that has something to do with breathing. Um, and you can hear. Uh, in the word inspiration, um, the, the breathing out, that's similar in the root to the word for spirit, right? Inspiration, spirit. Well, that's because the word, uh, the Greek word that's translated spirit can also be translated wind or breath, okay? So the term is, um, all right, Greek word alert, the term is theopneustos, theos, God, neustos, wind, breath, or spirit, okay? So, uh, when we say all scripture is given by inspiration, we say scripture is God-breathed, or God-spirited, or God-blown. And I think calling scripture God-breathed implies the role of the Holy Spirit in inspiring Scripture. So, you know, uh, theologians past will say cool sounding things like every time, you know, God's word goes forth, it's, his breath goes forth with it, which is kind of a cool thing to say. Um, 
Many other texts make the Spirit's role explicit in the Scripture, of course. 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. Know, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Well, and what do the prophets of Scripture speak about as they speak from God by the Spirit? In the main, about the Son. Like Jesus told the Pharisees, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them they have, you have eternal life. But it is that they, the Scriptures, bear witness about me, the Son. Yet you refuse to come to me that you can have life. It's interesting, isn't it? Here's a little side note for people who go to a Bible church. Uh, you can search the Scriptures in a way that is not coming to the Son, that you may have life. So don't do that. Back in 2 Timothy 3, um, in the classic text on the Bible, we see the same point made about what these breathed out or, or spirited out words from God point us to in verse 15, right before the phrase we read in verse 16. It says, the sacred writings are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So in the scriptures, the living God speaks, and he speaks about his son, or we could say he speaks in his son and by his spirit. Many other places in the Bible we could go to illustrate these truths. Uh, I picked just the Apostle Peter and listed three more verses on your handout from his letters. We've already read one of these passages, uh, 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, concerning the prophets of Scripture. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And then 1 Peter 1, 10 and following, goes into more detail about the content of these prophecies of Scripture. 1 Peter 1.10, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully. How did those prophets do that? Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicated when he, indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So the prophets of Scripture speak from God the Father, carried along by the Spirit, and they did that as the Spirit of Christ was in them, leading to speak about Christ. So that's why I say, right, the Father is speaking both in and about the Son in Scripture. Um, that verse, of course, probably in the main refers to the Old Testament Scriptures, the prophets predicting the Christ. But the other passage I listed here, 2 Peter 3, emphasizes how also the New Testament, or the words of the apostles, are to be considered the words of Christ. Uh, Peter writes about his own letter and says in 2 Peter 3, 1, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved, in both of them, both of my letters, I am stirring up your sincere minds by way of reminder. So if I say something that you've heard before, it's okay. 
stirring you up by way of reminder. It's biblical. Verse 2, that you should remember, and listen to this, remember the predictions of the holy prophets, which we've heard Peter talk about already, and the commandment of the Lord and Savior, the commandment of Jesus, through your apostles. How does the living Christ address us? Through his apostles, through the apostolic word, through the scriptures, the New Testament. Um, So you could think of it this way. If the words of the Old Testament are, are here called the predictions of the holy prophets, that was men speaking from the Father by the Spirit about the Son. And if the words of the New Testament can be called the commandments of the Lord, Jesus, through the apostles. So there, uh, men speak from God in the Son, by the Spirit. This reminds us, doesn't it, of the beginning of Hebrews? Some of you like nod just so your neighbor doesn't think you don't know the beginning of Hebrews. Long ago, and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. God speaks to us by His Son. He just did when I read Hebrews 1. That was God speaking to you in His Son by the Spirit. The words of this book are the living words of God. God testifies about Himself. You didn't know it when you were reading the Bible. You knew it, but you couldn't have put it this way probably. But that's fine. It doesn't change the truthfulness of it and the glory of it. That as you take in the Bible, the Father speaks to you in and about the Son by the Spirit. Or, or we could change it up a little bit and say, when you hear the words of the Bible, perhaps especially the New Testament, the Son speaks from and about the Father by the Spirit. I'm going to read another, um, how another man uh, put this same truth. I think it's helpful and wonderful. Kevin Van Hooser writes about the Bible. It is the Father's voice that eternally utters the Word, capital W, Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God eternally. Uh, the Son has been the Word, as, as if the Word proceeding from the divine voice. Um, so Jesus is the communication of the Father now in human form. Jesus said in John twelve forty nine, I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. Similarly, Jesus said that the Spirit of truth will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, John 16, 13. So in the pattern of triune communication, the Father is the originating voice, the Son, the Word, and the Spirit carries the Word. The prophets and apostles were set apart by God as creaturely means to advance 
God's communication of himself, in which the, capitalizes this, voice of God utters the, capital, word of God by the, capital, breath of God. The voice of God utters the word of God by the breath of God. And the prophets and apostles speak and write what the Spirit of Christ leads them to say. 1 Peter 1.10. 2 Peter 3.2. The Father speaks a word, the Son, who in turn commissions human agents to speak words on His behalf through the enabling power of the Spirit. What we have in the Scriptures is a profoundly... Um, living, Trinitarian thing. So the Bible is not some dead relic of God. The Bible is the living Word of God, the Trinity, to us. Whenever we read it, study it, meditate on it, we receive from God His own triune self-testimony. When we read it uh, in faith, and, and then I won't develop this, Next point, as, as especially with the, the help of the Spirit's illumination, which is also a Trinitarian work I could show you, um, to take in the Bible as a Christian is to be immersed in a, a deeply Trinitarian experience. So, uh, we don't have time to look at sanctification or missions, or evangelism. Um, You can dig in these things. You'll hit Trinitarian gold. Um, But at least you see, right, in prayer and Bible, which in many ways are uh, the left step and right step of of the Christian life, of walking with God, praying, taking in the Bible. Um, These are thoroughly... Trinitarian experiences. Last thing I'll say, I purposefully, and I mentioned this in week one, I purposefully did not mention at all in this series apologetics, how to defend the doctrine of the Trinity against cults who deny it. Because I wanted to teach you uh, that that is not the main reason why the doctrine of the Trinity has been revealed to us. And most of the time, um, I think the majority of the time we think about and study the Trinity, it is unfortunately just so that we can can, um, try and help someone who's trapped in that false teaching. That's a wonderful thing to do. I want to commend to you uh, the ministry of James White. You can just Google or YouTube James White. he has a lot of good resources, and, and really, you, uh, through some very simple internet operating, you can find some really, really good resources on how to defend the doctrine of the Trinity from, from a posture of apologetics and evangelism, okay? Um, so, for what it's worth. All right, I hate to kind of end the series with that announcement type of thing, but... <laughs> where we go. Let's pray. God, thank you uh, for showing us that you are Father, Son, and Spirit. We praise you, Father, and we praise you, Son, 
And we praise you, Spirit. You are altogether lovely. God, I pray that, um, again, uh, you would help us to understand these things better by the Spirit. You would give us, in a more mature way, the mind of Christ uh, so that we could offer you the worship that you deserve with the way that we live. And so that you would be magnified as, as we inch closer toward joy in you that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And we pray this all in Jesus' name, by the Spirit. Amen.